0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Chef Ted Reader, aka the Godfather of the Grill. Ted is an award-winning chef, author, and food product developer as well as a professor of modern culinary innovations at the Canadian Food and Wine Institute at Niagara College. Ted's passion for all things smoked and grilled sees him spreading his barbecue gospel during his frequent live cooking demonstrations and TV and radio appearances. Ted has written over 21 cookbooks, including Alicious, The Art of Grilling and Chilling, as well as The Complete Idiot's Guide to Smoking. Welcome, Ted Reeder, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you?
1: <laughs> Good morning, Andrew. Thank you uh, for having me on board. I'm uh, I'm in Etobicoke in Thistletown, and so I'm up at uh, the Islington and Albion Road area, and uh, I'm home today, which is a rather nice thing to be. Well, on that note, I guess you're always a traveling chef. I wonder
0: how much the changes with technology, and certainly COVID got everyone on Zoom. Has this made your life uh,
1: easier or more difficult in the ability to work from home? Uh, I like working from home. I've, I've been doing that for over 20 years, and uh, my kitchen is my backyard, and so my, I spend a lot of time out there cooking. There's somewhere in the range of between 60 and 80 grills and smokers in my yard and uh it's my test kitchen but the, the the pandemic was not uh was definitely not an easy thing uh everything came to a screeching halt in one day and so you're standing around trying to go well now what do i do and so now what do i do led to me opening a restaurant in the middle of the pandemic on uh, june 25th of 2020 we opened a place called the joint barbecue and uh it's located at the Eldorado Golf Club in Brooklyn, Ontario. Okay. And so my buddy, Doug, who owns Eldorado and a number of other golf courses, called me up and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing nothing. And he <laughs> said, uh, well, do you want to open a restaurant? I've got a, an empty restaurant, and uh, why don't we put a little barbecue place together? So we started that at, uh, at the end of June of 2020, ran through till December. And then last year reopened uh, April 1st, closed April 5th because of the <laughs> pandemic. They closed golf shortly thereafter, a week later, and uh, things, were, things were a little rougher. But uh, by mid-June, we were back up and running and ran through till Christmas with catering and, and lots of fun. And we're just getting ready uh, with some renovations right now that the thaw has come. And uh, we should be opening at some point near the end of this month. Oh, excellent. And are you a golfer yourself? Uh, I'm a horrible golfer. So it's uh, (laughs) you and me, you and me. Yeah. And our our course is nice. It's a nine hole course, uh, two par fours and and seven par threes. We have, uh, it's a crazy place. Um, We're all live fire barbecue. There's no gas grills, there's no pellet smokers. It's all old school hardwood and charcoal. Uh, we have live chickens running around the course and and on the outdoor kitchen area. They they they're addicted to French fries, our bone dust fries. So they uh, they come over and keep our guests happy and uh, look for little nibbles. <clears throat> and we we cook as much as we can and have some fun. So that's uh, the joint barbecue at El Dorado Golf Club. That's the best combination: a little golf, a little eating, yeah, beer. And be, much well, better you, than that. you hit
0: the trifecta. <laughs> That's it. Ted, if I may, let's go all the way back to the beginning. You are not a native Torontonian. Please tell us where you were born and, and describe your upbringing.
1: Uh, well, I was born in uh, in Georgetown, Ontario, but grew up in the town of Paris, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm a bit of a parasite. Uh, <laughs> spent, spent from the time I was five. And uh, so I am from Paris Is is really where I'm from. Mm-hmm. My mom still lives in Paris, and it's a great uh, it's a great little town. And I, I guess growing up, it was uh, you know learning how to cook. Yeah, mom would say, dad would say, you got to know this for your future. So it's one of those essential things in life: learn to cook, learn so it, to swim. And, and, and
0: well, and it's funny you say that because uh, I'm of a similar vintage to yourself, and I think that I remember in in school taking family studies. And yeah. they did teach you those life skills of basic cooking. Were you drawn to it outside of what was done in school, or or as a life skill? Did you have a
1: special interest when you were younger? Yeah, right from the right from the get-go. Uh, I think I started cooking when I was about six or seven. I'd hang out in the kitchen with my mom and and I'd help her out. I was always intrigued with going to the grocery store and and watching uh, what she was buying and how she shopped and what she looked for, and I found it. Uh, I found it commie. and so in the kitchen, it would be, you know, I could just put my head down and do my thing, and mm-hmm. I loved it. It just, it's been there since I was a kid, and that's all I ever wanted to do was cook.
0: Now, how did you make the transition from Paris to uh,
1: Toronto? Was that a direct line, or? Um, yeah, it was. I, I, I ended up, <clears throat> I had my first kitchen, my first job was working in a grocery store. And uh stocking shelves and what a shitty job that was. (laughs) And so uh I I then transitioned to washing dishes uh, at a holiday inn in Brantford, Ontario. Okay. And and I went to the chef and I said, This washing dishes is is a hard, crappy job. How do I learn to cook? And he says, Get the dishes done and uh I'll teach you how to cook. Wow. So I would I'm an amazing dishwasher. Like, like (laughs) platinum level dishwashing, <laughs> okay sure. and uh i i still i find i find washing dishes is a place to clear your head yeah and think about what's got to get done in the kitchen and um you know it also helps with your 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 staff that when they see the boss washing dishes they don't yeah. have a problem with washing dishes either so it's a great point lead by example lead by example and so <clears throat> i left uh I left working at the Holiday Inn and I worked at a steakhouse in between Brantford and Paris called the Old School Restaurant. Okay. And uh, decided I wanted to go to culinary school. And off I went to George Brown in Kensington Market Mm -hmm. at the time in 83 and took their culinary management program for a couple of years. And just uh, that was it. Just wanted to cook. So that's, That's where it began.
0: I want to give a quick shout out, if I may. My uh, my little baby sister Paula is a professor at George Brown, and she always talks. One of her favorite meals is to sneak down into, I guess, where the students uh, do their testing and everything. And she says that the program there is fabulous.
1: And obviously, uh, I, I presume you enjoyed it as well. I did. Um, I mean, at the time we were in, we were located in Kensington Market, so you had that that full market uh, of of flavor there from the meat shops and the cheese shops and the produce shops and the little restaurants and and it was a great place to learn because you were in the class and you'd go outside and there was just all this food and it it, it you were absorbed by it and it's uh, their their culinary program is outstanding and it's it's great the the chef's house at George Brown College is a wonderful restaurant to go and eat at and it's uh pretty good on the pocketbook too <laughs> it's a great combo <laughs> Now, Ted, I understand you also have a connection to Newfoundland. Yes, my dad. Uh, my dad is a newfie, uh, or was a newfie. Unfortunately, he passed away about twelve years ago. But he uh, born in Bonavista, okay, and um, spent a lot of his life there. My mom was uh, my mom, and her parents were the first Latvians to live in Newfoundland hmm. uh, after the war. So my grandfather was in the pulp and paper business. And ended up working for uh, Bow Waters in Cornerbrook. Okay. And that's where my dad met my mom. Mm. And uh, he had a friend named Blackie. And he said to his friend, he tells me this story, but he, he said to his friend, Blackie, you see that girl in that yellow raincoat over there? He said, yeah. He says, I'm going to marry her. And he did. And <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was awesome. That's great. Do you still have family in Newfoundland? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We've got some cousins throughout, uh, some in Bonavista that are crab fishermen. Okay. And uh, some still uh, a little bit in Cornerbrook, but uh, not as many as there used to be.
0: So you come out of George Brown. What was your first job?
1: Uh, between first and second year at George Brown College, I took a chef's position at a fishing and hunting lodge in northern Ontario. Wow. Called uh, Rogerson Lodges. And it was a small lodge but you cooked uh, breakfast lunch and dinner for the staff for the family that owned the lodge and for any of the guests we had uh, two fly in fishing camps and so uh, as well as our main camp and so i spent the summer up there uh, really getting my feet wet and and learning learning the ropes it was it was a big challenge uh, at that age and and i didn't have a lot of experience but i had more than most in my in my culinary class, because I'd had a number of years working at the Holiday Inn in the in the dish pit and in the kitchen, yeah. and then at the old school restaurant learning how to work the line, and and we would do at the old school 400 meals on a Friday Saturday night. Wow! And uh, you know you started in in prep and you worked your way up onto the line to cooking steaks,
0: and you learned. Being up at this lodge, as you say, doing all three meals, you, you really had to learn the whole gamut of uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner.
1: Yeah, they were, uh, they were. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I arrived, they say, okay, we bake everything in-house. So you bake your own bread, you bake your own pies. There's five cookie jars on the counter, and they need to be filled with five different flavors of cookies. And uh, the guides like having cookies, and the owners, you know, they can walk in and get a cookie whenever they want it. And baking was not my strong suit in in culinary school. It was uh, the hardest thing for me, but I I did all right. We had fun and uh, I did it for a year or for the, for the season, then went back to culinary school and then did it again uh, for another six months till the end of the season and made my way out to Banff, Alberta to go skiing and, and work at Sunshine Village Ski Resort. Well, you really, uh, You've traveled all seasons, all places.
0: You're doing fishing. You're doing skiing. Now you got the golf tie-in. I love the way you've made your career into your uh, extracurriculars as well.
1: As well. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I mean, the fishing and hunting lodge was great because you could fish. And then in the, in the hunt season, we'd go hunting. And uh, it was always exciting there. Beautiful, beautiful spot to be. And uh, good memories. Good memories. Now, at, at
0: some point, you transitioned to, I, I believe, what was formerly known as the Sky Dome Hotel. That was formerly known as Sky Dome and is now the Rogers Centre. Tell us about that experience.
1: Well, I, I, I came back to Toronto, I guess, in, in 86. Um, started working for a restaurant called Rhodes Restaurant up at Young and St. Clair, mm-hmm. part of the Chrysalis Restaurant Group. And <clears throat> worked with them for a number of years, Uh, was chef at a restaurant called Perry's and then moved over to another one called Bemelman's. And then I left there in um, the end of 88 and I saw the Skydome being built. And, and uh, I was like, I want to work there. I think it'd be really cool to work there. So I had a, I had a job interview with, uh, with the executive chef of the Skydome. His name was Nigel shoot. And Nigel was, uh, I, I say, would, would be i still call him chef let's just put it that way okay. he was the chef and uh, a mentor and i learned a lot about him in kitchen management and and running a kitchen and i ended up being starting out as the executive sous chef of uh, the hotel when it opened in uh, in the fall of 1989 mm-hmm. and eventually became the chef of that hotel and during the highlight of the the blue jays through the all-star game of 91 and up to the World Series. I was there till 92. And it was an incredible place, you know, from WrestleMania to Rolling Stone Steel Wheels Tour or ACDC playing Paul McCartney. I mean, it was it was quite an entertainment complex. It was the biggest and largest and best in the world at that time. And it was, uh, it was super, super cool. But I'll, I'll say being perseverant is an important thing in life. Mm-hmm. And I had this job interview. It was January of 1989. And so the chef said, listen, I'd like to hire you. I'd like to bring you on board. I'd like to put you in the hotel. And I'm like, great. When do I start? He says, well, they haven't built the hotel yet. <laughs> and and so, you know, it, the, the Sky Dome opened in the middle of May of 1989. Yep. And I started calling the chef probably in March going, hey, when do I start? And I'd call him, you know, once every couple of weeks. And then in May, I, I left him alone because he was busy getting the place open. But came around July, I started calling him once a week. And then it was twice a week. Then it was pretty much every day. <laughs> and when do I get, when do I start? When do I start? And he got tired of my phone calls and he said, just, just come in. <laughs> and Start just come in. And so I came in and started working in the production kitchen until the until the hotel opened up and made my way up there. So it was you know it was a job I wanted. It was a it was a very cool place to work. I loved baseball. I loved working for the Jays. Um my kitchen refrigerator was right behind the Blue Jays dugout. Oh wow. And so I would I remember my my chef called me one day on the walkie-talkie and he says, uh, "Where are you?" Uh, I said, "I'm just down by the field." He says, "No, you're not. You're sitting in the dugout with the with, with the players. Take your chef hat off." <laughs> so couldn't get away with anything back then. No, no, no. They, you know, because it was on TV or something, <laughs> and he's watching the game, and he's like, "Oh my god!" Right? But I, I love baseball, and I, and it was kind of cool to be able to. To talk with, with Dave Steve and Tom, Tom Hankey back then, and yeah and, and Robbie Alomar lived in the hotel, so every day. <laughs> that had always uh, been rumored. Yeah, he lived there, uh, ate the same meal every day of the week. <laughs> it never changed. <laughs> what was that? Do you remember? Uh, grilled chicken breast with salt and pepper. Yep. steamed broccoli and plain white rice. and that's what he lived off of.
0: Well, Ted, back then, I think we're talking about 89. I I don't think athletes were as aware of what they're eating. There certainly wasn't the focus for the corporate boxes on the type of food. I mean, it was still arena stadium food, hot dogs and, and chips and popcorn. You were right at that forefront, I guess, of elevating food from just arena food or stadium food to
1: something higher, would you say? For sure. For sure. Um, I mean, the Sky Dome at the time had the Founders Club, which was the... Uh, which was the private club in there. And they, they were doing some extremely high end food, bringing in the best of the best from around the globe and the hotel. We were, we were, we were running sometimes two to 3000 meals out of that kitchen a night when, when baseball was full, because back then the stadium, there wasn't a seat to be had and it was, it was packed. And so we, trying to run a menu and we would run upwards of eight or nine different menus out of that kitchen. You had uh, the health club menus. You had uh, all the viewing suites in the hotel and the boxes that were part of the hotel, plus the hotel menu, the bar menu. And then we would do uh, an event menu plus room service. Wow. And it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. So we, I designed a bunch of menus that were more, themed towards the visiting team. Okay. And so when Boston would come in, I would do a sea salt rubbed roast of uh, prime rib or roast of strip loin. And then you'd make um, Boston clam chowder as an appetizer and Boston cream pie as the dessert. And so it was a set menu and uh, you would bang it out and it would you'd have two waves of, of people coming in to eat and 250 people at a time for our dining room. I think that's fabulous that you themed it to the ho- team that was coming in. yeah, it was it, we wanted to give a little bit something different. yeah um, it wasn't just about hot dogs and and burgers and popcorn and peanuts. It was about giving an experience and and really having a great time when you went to watch the the Jays. Well, as you probably know, they just recently announced they're gonna do a
0: significant renovation of the Rogers Center and somewhere down the road, I guess we'll get a new stadium. But I guess with your perspective, the, one of the big reasons to do this renovation would be to get the, the kitchen area up to speed. I imagine now after all these years that that probably needs a renovation.
1: I would think so. I haven't been in the kitchens at the, at the dome in over 20 years, but I mean windows on the world was this massive buffet, right? And yeah. Sight lines as well. And you had the hard rock cafe that was in there. Yep. And it was, it was a crazy, crazy place. And the, and, uh, yeah it was it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun and i think i think a renovation would be great i think the the sky dome is is still the sky dome to me it's not the rogers center yeah me, you and me um you know that that roof spins open and it's the sky dome there's you see the sky from in the dome and you look up at that tower it's pretty iconic it's pretty uh it's pretty impressive i remember walking the if you've ever sat in the skydome and looked up at their ceiling when it's closed, okay. there's a staircase that runs over. I, I get I get and my pit of like, my stomach. I go, who's going up there? Yeah, well, I did once. <laughs> and uh, the guy that took me up there, he said, "You better not freeze up on me cuz I'm not carrying your fat ass down those stairs." <laughs> so, <laughs> Ted, why were you up there? Why would you have even been going up there? Uh, he, he was, he was one of the the guys that did maintenance stuff. And he was in the, in the, he would come through the kitchen and I said, where are you heading? And, you know, chit chat. And he said, oh, I'm going up. He says, you want to go? I said, sure. And man, it's high. <laughs> and yeah, it's scary. And I, I don't think I'd ever do that again. <laughs> I, well, you are one of the few
0: who can say you've had that experience. I always did see those stairs and I wondered who the heck is going up there and why Ted reader has been there. Ted, the transition eventually happened to uh, Loblaws and President's Choice. Was this a direct line from your
1: work at Skydome, or was there something in between? There was in between. I, had, uh, I, I was burnt out after four years at the Dome. It was, uh, you know, you did an 11-game homestand. I'd be arriving at 5.36 in the morning, and I'd be going home at midnight. Wow. And you were working long days. Your feet were sore. They were throbbing. Uh, your back was sore, your body ached, and you'd go home, get four or five hours of sleep, and back at it. And I was, I was riding my bike down to the skydome most of the days. I lived, uh, lived up behind Maple Leaf Gardens. And so it was a hike, and then after a 12, 14, 15-hour day to ride home, some days I just left that bike and took a cab. <laughs> but it was, um, I left there and I went to work for my, uh, my best friend. She had a catering company called uh, Babette's Feast. Okay. And it was, uh, she needed a hand with, uh, with her events and things. And it was a nice transition. It was quiet. It wasn't as stressful. Uh, it definitely didn't pay as much as what I was doing at the, at the Skydome. But we, we started, uh, we were doing it, we, we were bidding on a, an event for uh, fashion care's. And so it was through the AIDS Foundation, and we were bidding on uh, doing their gala fundraiser, and it was about 3,000 people. Okay. And so two of the people that were sitting on the board of Fashion Cares was a gentleman by the name of Nicholas Penny, who was a designer at Holt Renfrew, and Holtz was a a sponsor of the event. And then um, a wonderful, wonderful lady by the name of Terry Nichol. And Terry Nichol was Dave Nichol's wife. Mm-hmm. And Terry uh, and Nicholas came to the catering kitchen for lunch, and I cooked them a four or five course dinner back then, uh, a luncheon. And after the event, uh, Terry Nickel called uh, called my my boss or my friend Wendy and and her partner Charles and said, "Who is that guy in the kitchen?" And so they said, uh, "Well, it's Ted Reader." And, and 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 she said, "Boy, that guy can cook." And the next thing I know, I was catering for the nickels. We we won that uh the right to cater that party. And um I think it was the Christmas of uh Christmas of ninety ninety two. She said, uh, you know, if you ever want a job with loblaws, just ask. And I said, I'm asking. <laughs> and she looked over at Dave and said, Dave, Ted's ready. And Dave said, Come see me tomorrow. So I walked into Loblaws the next day and sat down and met the team and went to work. That's fabulous. Yeah. Dave Nickel
0: was the head of product development at Loblaws and he grew the President's Choice brand in conjunction with super designer Don Watt. Now, President's Choice, also known as PC, it was a Canadian private label or or a store brand owned and created by Loblaws that covered a huge variety of grocery and household products. You were there during this very important time. It was said that Dave's taste buds decree major business decisions.
1: Yes, they did. Um, I get goosebumps when I talk about Dave because uh, the man was magnificent to work for. Uh, He was not easy to work for. But his memory for flavor, uh, I've never come across by anybody else in the world. He was truly, truly amazing. And he had an amazing product development team uh, that were were underneath him and that were his guiding light and taking his vision and creating those products. Dave was about President's Choice being better than the national brand in terms of quality and in terms of price. And that was always the foundation of everything that we did and developed was it better than the national brand? And was it a better price? And if it wasn't a better price, how do we get it to being the better price and keep the quality there? Um, it, it was, it was fantastic. I was involved. My first project there was to finish off the recipe development of the, uh, president's choice, the Dave nickel cookbook. Yes, And that was the first book I ever worked on. Okay. And, uh, we started in on that. We were running a dinner, a, a President's Choice dinner at the Sutton Place Hotel at the same time, and then because of my ties with the Skydome, we ran a rib fest at the Skydome back in, uh, in the summer of 93. Okay. And that was the year that President's Choice bought a million pounds of baby back ribs and was selling them at $1.99 a pound. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, we sold out of a million pounds in about three to four weeks, and had to bring in another million pounds of ribs. It's incredible! And it was it was amazing times. the The food that would come into the the test kitchen, the 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 ideas, the innovation, um, it was extremely intriguing. And my transition went from not just being a chef that was creating recipes utilizing the memory sauces or any of the the different products that were available. But I eventually got into developing food products and spent a lot of time in the meat category, fresh and frozen, developing their line of frozen burgers and flavored chicken wings and chicken breasts and stuffed chicken breasts and things like that. And it was, uh, it was incredible, but, uh, I think the the first product I ever developed was the, the real jerk uh, and the timid jerk chicken wings. Yes. And um, I had, I was working on this item and it was just something that I had as a concept. And I had talked to the supplier and he brought me some samples and I was standing in the kitchen and I was just tasting them on my own. And Dave walked through and, and he said, what's that? And I said, well, they're, they're jerk wings. And he said, where'd this come from? And he says, it's just some idea that I had. I thought I'd put it together. And he tasted it. And he said, wow, these are amazing. Show this at lunch. And then, um, so I showed them at lunch and he approved them. Mm-hmm. And they ended up in the uh, the Christmas Insiders report of uh, 1993. And those were my first products. They made it onto the front cover as the real jerk and the timid jerk chicken wings. That's amazing. And, and it was it was it was pretty exciting. But I'll, I'll tell you a little story of Dave, just how amazing his palate was. Please do. So he came into the kitchen one morning, and uh, this other product developer Mary Pat, um, her uh, Dave wanted to taste ketchups, and President's Choice had. Their PC ketchup, there was their no-name ketchup, there was a PC ketchup formulation for their stores that they were delivering to in the United States. There was a a PC ketchup that was being sold in grocery stores in England. There was a PC ketchup that was being done in Australia. There was Hunt's ketchup, Heinz ketchup, Heinz ketchup from the States. There was Primo ketchup. There was all kinds of different ketchups. There was 14 different ketchups on the counter. So I set this tasting up and I put the catch 14 different ketchups in clear plastic glasses and Dave came in and he tasted them on his own and tasted all 14 tasted them a second time and then rhymed off every single one exactly as to what it was. This is Heinz USA, this is Heinz, Canada, this is Hunts, this is no name. This is PC from Australia. This is PC from Canada. Blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Changed my opinion of of him and his taste profile and his palate and his memory for flavor forever. He wasn't just a suit. Brilliant. He wasn't just a businessman. He was he
0: understood the business of food and what people wanted.
1: Yes, he did. And he loved food. I mean, he was. You know, He wanted the best of the best. If it was fantastic and it was from some place in the middle of the world that you'd never heard of, he wanted it. And he strived for us to get it. And I remember he came back from he was in Thailand and he came back and he's like, I had this amazing sauce. And I'm like, what was the sauce? And he says, I don't know. He says, go talk to Ann, who was his assistant. And about an hour later, we're, we're, we're setting up a meeting to talk to this hotel, to talk to the chef in Thailand, to find out what that sauce was. And it eventually ended up being the sweet chili sauce under a PC. All from that start. <laughs> from way back then. So that was, that was kind of neat. So you, you had to get the, the, the recipe out of the chef, and then it was passed that off to the sauce developer who took it to the sauce plant, who created it there. And and Dave would, would, you know, he'd go to a restaurant and he'd eat a sauce and he'd go, This is amazing. I need this sauce. And then, you know, you're I'm talking to the chefs and getting the recipe. And the next thing you know, it moves on down the line.
0: Now I have my own Dave Nichols story, which involves you. There's zero chance you're gonna remember this, but I'll I'll quickly tell you if you don't mind. 1993 in the fall, I came out of Western and my very first job was at 22 St. Clair on the seventh floor. And I was with the Loblaws supermarket team, which represented more the retail arm. Yeah. And my boss at the time was Dave mock. And he said, Apple Bomb, get in here. I got to talk to you. I ran in. I had just started with him. And he said, I want you to go up to the ninth floor. You're not going to believe this. The, he didn't say this, but to, to the listeners, and you certainly know this, this is an office tower. The ninth floor had a test kitchen there that probably rivaled kitchens in any restaurant in the middle of an office tower, right? Yeah. So the ninth floor was where you and your team were, did all the product development. So Dave Mock says to me, get your ass up there to the ninth floor. I want you to represent us. There's a big meeting going on. You're going to have Edmund O'Keefe, who was kind of his uh, right-hand man, Dave Nichols' right-hand man at the time, kind of bridging the retail group with the food development. Ted Reeder going to be up there. He's going to be showing a product. And Dave Nichols going to be up there. I want you to get up there, represent us. And I said, great. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to? He says, I want you to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> do not say a word. Get your eyes open, your ears open, get up there. So we went up and you had some kind of product. You were demonstrating or showing to everybody. And just to show you how his taste buds kind of ran the whole show, he walked in. Everyone kind of got quiet and talking about Dave Nichols here. He took a small sample of it was it was a it was a meat looked like some kind of chili product. The room went totally silent. He closed his eyes, he swallowed, he nodded his head, the tension broke. Dave likes it. This was market research, Dave Nickel style. No focus groups, no marketing surveys. If Dave Nickel likes a taste, it's in. And that yes. would sound certainly like
1: your experience on more than one occasion. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, that was that was Dave, man. If he liked it, he was all over it. And, yeah, and uh, you know, you had to you had to really listen to when he, you know, if he didn't like something or if he liked it but he needed to be tweaked, you really had to listen to the details that came out of his mouth as to what he wanted you to do to change that product to make it better. And I'll, I'll give you a little little story about the decadent chocolate chip cookie. Very, this is the the famous cookie. Upgraded the whole cookie category. That's it. And uh, Dave wanted, at the time, wanted 50% chocolate chips in uh, in that cookie. And it just couldn't be done. It couldn't <laughs> be done. And he kept trying and trying and pushing. It eventually ended up being 39% chocolate chips. Because anything more, the cookie wouldn't hold together. It was just okay. too much chocolate. And every week Dave tasted chocolate chip cookies every single week that there would be a box of cookies, every single production run that happened, Dave wanted to taste the cookies and he would talk about the butter and the chocolate and the, and the back notes of coconut that Mm -hmm. were in that cookie. And that was the way it was done. And he Loved those products. Uh, he loved the coffee. PC coffee was was another thing that he tasted all the time. He wanted consistency for the consumers. He wanted the best price, and he wanted the best flavors. It's been
0: uh, rumored, tied in with that, he, the quality of the food was so important to him that when he branched off into PC pet food, and he had a, a very you know, well-known bulldog, I think Georgie, always pictured with his dog. It was rumored that the meat quality in that PC dog food was better than
1: most human food quality at that time. Probably. Yes. It's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, We never did pet food tastings, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> but we did open the cans and you did look at the, the consistency of the meat and the blend and the smell. And you, you looked at it Yeah, and, uh, and he tried it out on his dogs and, you know, Georgie girl liked it and, and then the other puppies that he had afterwards—that was it. But Dave, Dave was passionate about his food, and and his, and Terry, I was I was talking to Terry probably about two or three weeks ago. Okay, and um, you know she said she she was still to this day is about the stories of the food and the best she's ever eaten and the times with Dave and she loved him and she loved those days. And uh, it, it, for me, just part of the best of my career. It was a special time. Yeah, for sure.
0: Now, Dave Nickel, unfortunately, passed in 2013. But another person that worked closely with him, and if you had any insights, who I think gets a, a, a lot amount of credit for the success of President's Choice and the branding, was Don Watt who uh, unfortunately also, he passed away in 2009. Did you have much interaction with Don Watt? And how would you describe the partnership with, between Dave Nickel and Don Watt? Uh,
1: it was a tight partnership. I didn't have a lot to deal with in, in, in the way of, of Don Watt. That was more of the design group, uh, Russ Rudd and, and his team of people in terms of developing the concepts of what the PC brand would look like. Um, i i met don watt more through the uh, developments when pc went on to develop walmart's private label mm-hmm. so in in uh, we had sent a team down to, to live in bentonville arkansas and work with walmart on the development of their sam's American choice brand at that time and the great value brand and it, kind of kind of neat that that you walk into a Walmart now and you see the number of great value products and know that the foundation of that is President's Choice.
0: I think that's one of Canada's greatest exports.
1: We exported yes. the control label, the private label uh, concept, I guess. Yeah, D- David found that, I think, in, in France at the time, uh, back in, in, uh, in the 80s. Um, and really, and then Trader Joe's had uh, the Insider's Report and Dave sort of took these concepts and built it into the, the Loblaw machine and, and developed that PC and that no-name brand. And, you know, if you go into any grocery store in the world, they have their own private label brands now, whether it be a, a Safeway or a Jewel or a Kroger or whoever it is in the United States, uh, Costco, they have their private label brand. Everyone does. And, and really, it was President's Choice that, uh globalize that absolutely
0: it's an amazing business story yeah i think there's two uh two urban myths that maybe you can comment on we maybe we can get to the bottom of these the first is the president's choice lovely script handwritten script it looks like was that actually dave nichols signature yes it's been confirmed when President's Choice uh, had launched, Don Watt had suggested that then-current spokesman William Shatner be replaced by Loblaw's president, Dave Nichol, after Shatner's availability became limited by his involvement in a new television
1: series. Was William Shatner involved with President's Choice at one time? Uh, I, I can't answer that one. I, um, I remember that he was involved with Loblaw's. Uh, I and, and that, but I I don't know if he was involved in the private label end of things. That was oh. that was really was a Dave baby, and um and Brian Davidson was involved in that pr- development of that private label brand, and the whole yeah. team of people there at Lawblaws. But Dave was the passion. Dave was the spokesperson of it. Nobody could do it better than Dave. Uh, not then, not now. Dave was oh. the guy. He truly understood the product and the brand and wanted to bring flavors of the world to the consumers, wanted to change their eating habits, wanted to give them better food experiences um, through the flavors from different countries around the globe. And so he capitalized on that and uh, extremely passionate about it. Well, I I appreciate your perspective and uh, certainly we could –
0: talk about presence choice and lablas all day but we're here to talk Ted reader I appreciate you putting up with all my questions about that I want to talk about you and your branding how important is branding to Ted reader and talk a little about you' you've had TV shows you've got books you got a product line how does that all tie together for you um it's chaos
1: it's like <laughs> juggling all day long riding yeah. a roller coaster and trying to juggle at the same time uh, I've had a I've had a A great career. I've enjoyed. uh, I've enjoyed every moment of my career. They they definitely—it's a roller coaster of flavor and fun. Uh, For me, the foundation of everything that I do is the food. Always has been. uh, I think that's why I got along so well with Dave and with Terry Nichol was because it was always about the food for me. And with my restaurant now, I want my consumers to have a great experience. Uh, little things. We take our time to make it better. We try not to do certain shortcuts. Um, We're live fire barbecue. It's not a gas grill. We don't make it easy on ourselves. We challenge ourselves to make it harder. Um, The harder you work, the better it should taste. And so that, for me, it's always been um, striving for what's next. You know, you can live on what you've done in the past, but Really, it's what are you going to do next? And, you know, when I did that, when I worked on that Dave Nichol cookbook and and followed it up with the PC barbecue cookbook in in 95, those were great experiences. Um, Through President's Choice, I started doing a television show called Cottage Country. And it was because of PC uh, that I got that uh, opportunity. And Cottage Country really allowed me to, to learn more about the art of barbecue. And I kind of fell in, you know, and I, I always ended up in a kitchen on a grill. It was just a place I was comfortable. I wanted to be by the open fire, whether it was a gas grill or a charcoal pit, didn't matter. I loved that part of the business. And so moving into cottage country and, and doing that show for nine years really allowed me to develop my love of barbecue and expand it which led into the development of a line of sauces and a line of spice rubs. My bone dust uh, spice rub has appeared in most of my cookbooks and is a pretty iconic uh, rub and uh, now available in a jar. And it's, it's a small, it's, it's now run by me. There's just me involved in my, my spice lineup and my sauce business. Okay. And I'm in limited number of stores, probably about thirty five or forty of them in in Ontario and a couple in calgary and and one in New Brunswick. And looking at expanding through distribution uh, my product line and growing it. It's a lot of work. You you know I'm involved in the design of the labels. I'm involved in picking which jar and which cap. And I'm involved definitely in the formulation. And that was the thing about uh, working at Loblaws was the creation of how do you take that concept of a recipe and turn it into a product that's on the shelf. And it's not as easy as, as people might think it is. It's like, oh, I make a great sauce. I'd love to put it in a jar. It's yeah. not that easy. Um, you, you need to, well, there's, there's a path and you've yeah. got to find that path and work through it and there's lots of mistakes that you make and you start reading ingredient declarations a little bit differently and you look at nutritional a little bit differently and you want a clean ingredient deck and and what is your shelf life going to be and how do you maintain that shelf life and what are consumers looking for um it, it's always evolving it never stops and so with me um Well, for example, I'm, I'm my spices. I have a processor that makes my, my product line. They do a great job. Um, But you know, if they can't keep up with my volume, which is some of the issues that I'm having now, I have to look at other opportunities with other suppliers that can handle an increase in volume. So you're, it's never, you can never be complacent. Um, It's like kids, it's grows, and you've got to develop and nurture it and, and work with it, and that's, I don't know how I get there sometimes, but you manage through the through the chaos, Um, and it's really strives uh, for flavor, and it's about the flavor, and then push the suppliers, and work with the suppliers, and be nice to your suppliers, because the suppliers, uh, it's not an easy game that they're in. They're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars, and they don't want to waste that money. So you have to be respectful of who's out there and what they're doing, and find companies that you can work with. Well, it's clear that you've taken all your past experiences. You still continue
0: to develop them today. You you got the full you got the full toolbox, Ted. You got the product product development. You got the business acumen. Now a lot of your testing is done very close to where you live and breathe and sleep, apparently you have, as you mentioned, 60 to 80 grills and smokers in your backyard.
1: Why do you have so many? Um, Well, one, I want to know more than than most people do about grills and smokers. I want my fan base to be able to ask me, you know, what's this gas grill like? Or what's this pellet smoker like? Or what's this wood-burning stove like? And um, I want to be able to answer them. I want to be able to provide them with some knowledge that they can increase and, and make their food experiences better in their backyard. Um, the pandemic has done a wonderful thing by getting people to cook more, to experience, uh, more different, fl- to, to experience different flavors, to experience um, cooking where a lot of people never cooked, You know, everything came out of a box or a package. Convenience foods were made. Our lives were so busy with work, 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 go, go, go. Kids, hockey, sports, nonstop. It never ends. And so food becomes, oh, we just have to eat. So it becomes convenience. Mm -hmm. The pandemic uh, arrived and that convenience became, well, you know, why should I cook a frozen lasagna when I can make a lasagna? Mm -hmm. Why should I? You know, why should I buy a frozen burger when I can make a burger? Yeah. And can you grill that burger? Can you sous vide that burger? Can you microwave that burger? Can you pan fry it? Can you cook it in a waffle iron? There's a million different things that have come out of this pandemic on a world of flavor. That's pretty incredible. Um killed the restaurant industry, unfortunately, and done a lot of damage to the the food service and hospitality business. But getting people cooking is an important life skill. Teaching your children how to cook and getting them involved in food uh, is an important aspect. I look at my kids, they hate cooking. My Mm -hmm. son looks at me and he goes, why should I cook when I have you? <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, well, because when you don't have me, you're going to need to cook. But yeah. he's uh, he's a boy that has uh, an incredible palate okay. and will eat and try anything. My daughter is pretty experimental as well. But uh, the weird stuff, she's like, can you just not cook that? So I... <laughs> you know, and I, I like to cook all the weird things from hearts to tongues, to livers, to kidneys, you know, to testicles even. And, wow. uh, yeah, no, we cook it It all is edible and it's all meant to be learned how to cook. And so the more I cook, the more information I have that I can pass on to my consumers so that they can have a better food experience. Speaking of information, this is a hot
0: time of the year for you. We're preparing for the new barbecue season. Ted, what do you say about people getting equipment ready? So everyone's now going to go into their shed or garage if they if they haven't been barbecuing all year. What are kind of the, some of the key things they need to do to get ready for the new barbecue season?
1: Well, for the, for the new season, if you're not, like I, I'm cooking year round. Winter, spring, summer, fall, rain, snow, doesn't matter what it is. I get out there and I cook. Um, a lot of people, though, they don't do that. Come Labor Day, they put their grill away and they don't pull it out until May two four, and so those, you know, if you're if you're storing it for the winter, the first thing you got to do is pull it out and clean it completely. If you didn't clean it before you put it away, which is what you should have done, mm-hmm. so that you can prevent it from rusting and and uh, <laughs> and clogging up completely. That uh, you can't get it clean. But you need to clean your grills. Uh, A clean grill is a hotter grill. A clean grill is a healthier grill. And maintaining a clean grill throughout the season, whether it's just a gas grill in your backyard or it's a Kamado or it's a pellet smoker, if it's a Santa Maria grill or a wood-burning pit, all need to be cleaned and maintained so that you produce the best in flavor. A clean grill will also give you, will taint the food. And make it uh, not taste the way that it should. So keeping it clean and scrubbing it down is extremely important. Uh, replacing parts where it's necessary. Having a good cover for it to uh, to, to keep it so that it's going to last a lot longer. All important. If you're going to go and buy a new grill, if you're looking to invest in a new grill, uh, really comes down to a couple simple little things. One, what's your budget? And whatever your budget is, add 25%. <laughs> okay? And because you have to account uh, for accessories and the other things that you might need. Um, the second thing you need to understand is, is how hard do you want to work? And, you know, if you're going to buy a pellet smoker, it's nice and easy. Mm-hmm. You plug it in, you set the temperature, you really you can tap it into your phone. And then you can monitor its cook and you don't have to do anything. It's a real easy thing to use. Uh, for me, it's a little bit boring. It produces a great product, but it doesn't do for me what I really want it to do. You like to uh, you like to enhance
0: it a little, put a little work into it. That's for sure. I think one, one of the things that uh, this time of year, you get asked all the time for your top tips of grilling and barbecuing. I wonder which way we should approach this. Should we say... Should we focus on Ted's top things of you should do or the top mistakes that Ted notices that you shouldn't do?
1: It's a little bit of both. Um, one, if, if you're grilling and it's just to say you're firing up a gas grill, but anything that you're going to cook, patience is number one on the list. You need to have patience. Number two, you don't have to cook on high all the time. You know, searing a steak on high is wonderful, but cooking a chicken breast at super high temperatures is not necessary. You mm-hmm. get more. Uh, well, reality is the longer it takes to cook, the more beer you get, and <laughs> that's a great <laughs> incentive, Ted. Right? You slow it down. Um, patience is 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 extremely important. You don't need a ton of different equipment to make great food. You don't need a ton of different rubs and sauces to make great food. Salt, pepper, garlic, and fresh herbs. A little bit of lemon juice can enhance and make a meal as simple and wonderful and, and be a gourmet experience without all the fluff that you need to add to it. Um, I've made complicated recipes my entire career. I still do. But some of the best food I do is simplified. And it's just nice and easy. And that's the key is slow it down. And and now that you've got a world of flavor that you can visualize through social media, if you don't understand it, if you can't understand what the recipe is, Google it, mm-hmm. look it up, watch a video. There's lots of instructional uh, information that you can get out there. So use the the internet to help you make your food experiences even better. The, uh, the
0: education has been never more accessible than it is today. There's a YouTube video for everything.
1: That is. There is.
0: It's time now for Andrew's family has questions. Uh, whenever my family finds out who's appearing on the Toronto Legends podcast, they always have better questions than I could ever come up with. So here we go. My lovely and talented wife, Vicky, says, sear or reverse sear? What will produce a better steak? Depends on the steak.
1: Oh, there we go. What is the best steak we should be grilling, Ted? Well, not all meat is the same. So if you go into a grocery store and you buy a tray pack, we'll talk strip loin steaks for now, right? Okay. A New York strip. If you go into a grocery store and you see it in a tray and it's overwrapped and there's really nothing, it just says meat on it, um, <laughs> you have to look at, one, internal fat marbling. Most grocery store meats are mediocre at best. So if you're going to buy that New York strip steak that's in a tray pack and it's not labeled AAA Canadian or it's not labeled 21 day age on it, most meat in the grocery store is probably somewhere between 10 and 17 days old at the most. The animal is slaughtered. It goes through its rigor and then it's processed and it goes out to the stores as quickly as it can. It's perishable, it's fresh, um, and not much is done because the more you do to it, the more expensive it gets. Okay. So a steak that you buy in the tray versus the steak you buy from the meat counter that's in the store. For example, like at a Fortino's, they have a beautiful butcher counter and you go up there and the butchers are cutting the meat and grinding meat. There, you'll get a better experience with the quality of the meat that you get versus what's sometimes in the tray. Mm -hmm. And then, if you go to a specialty butcher where some of them are wet aging the meat for 35 days or 49 days or 100 days, or they're dry aging the beef, and you've gone from double A to triple A to now you've got certified Angus and sterling silver and, and prime. And it all changes. Wagyu. The more internal fat, the more fat, the more flavor, the better the cut. And then it's it comes down to the thickness of a steak. Mm-hmm. So a thin steak, you're going to want to cook hot and fast. Direct heat, fire it up, and it's on and it's off, depending on how you want to have it done. If it's going to be rare, medium rare, or all the way through to well done, God forbid. <laughs> but there are people that like well done steaks. and they're entitled to eat them however they like.
0: Those are the um, ones that eat it with ketchup, Ted.
1: Well, there are those people as well. I can't help stupid. Um, <laughs> so to,
0: to sear or reverse sear depends
1: on the meat. Yeah, I, I like to do on a on a, a steak that is two or three inches thick. If it's uh something like a uh, like a tomahawk or a big thick ribbed steak, mm. you want to cook that nice and easy with a reverse sear. It's Just imagine uh, the meat is sitting in a sauna. It's 200 degrees, 225 degrees in there, and it's slowly coming up to temperature where the entire piece of meat is all uniform in temp. And when you get to that internal temperature, it's usually somewhere between 105 and 115 degrees internal. You then fire up, you pull it out, you fire up your grill, you get it smoking, smoking hot, and you sear for two to three minutes per side, bring it up to an internal temperature of 135 degrees on a rib steak, let it rest for five minutes, and then dig in and enjoy it. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. But sometimes yeah, a quick sear, and then put it to the side and close the lid and let it rest for 10 to 12 minutes is also a great way to do it. And I do a class. The one thing about pandemics is, is I started to do a lot of zoom barbecue classes. Okay. And so I do an ultimate steak class and I teach you five different ways of cooking a steak. And so you want to learn the reverse sear. Great. You want to learn about all the different cuts of steak. I'm going to show you seven to nine different cuts. Uh, you're going to learn how to do it caveman style. You're going to learn how to do it sear and rest. You're going to do reverse sear. You're going to learn how to do the sous vide. You're going to learn how to do it, cook it in a cast iron pan. And so there's multiple different ways from grilling on a gas grill to grilling on a charcoal grill. When is the charcoal at the right temperature to grill? Again, requires patience and understanding. And Most people don't understand like they, they get charcoal, and they fire it up, and just when they see the flames, they think they're ready. And it actually, you need to wait until there's no flames and the coals are completely white, and there's no longer an aroma that comes off the charcoal because it's burning clean.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's, and there's no flame, and there's just the ashes starting to, to form over top of the coal. That's when you start your steak cooking. And patience,
0: people. Patience, 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 patience is the patience, word. That's My it. little brother, Lawrence, says, I love to grill halloumi cheese on the barbecue. Does Ted Reader recommend any other cheeses or unique items that I can try on the grill
1: this summer? Uh, definitely halloumi is, is a great grilling cheese. It's a, uh, it's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, a thing that I created back in, in the late nineties was planked brie. Okay, so you take wow. a wheel of brie and you put it on a board and you smoke it hot and fast and it gets all smoky and warm and gooey on the inside. Works great with camisola. Works great with uh, with camembert. You want a whole wheel. Small ones, usually around 125 to 150 grams. Works the best. Uh, if you're going to grill some cheese, flat tops and griddles work really well for, for melting cheeses. You want a cheese that's got a high amount of fat in it and not a lot of moisture. So that'll grill a little bit better and uh, and makes for, for a tasty cheese. So really get playing. Halloumi is probably your best grilling cheese. Um, but, you know, the longer you leave it on there, the more it's going to
0: melt. Well, speaking of unique items on the grill, my brother-in-law Alvin remembers the beer can chicken craze, and he associates you in particular with your TV appearances in, in the past. He asks if you were the originator of the beer
1: can chicken, and if this is still one of your favorites to make. Uh, it is one of my favorites to make. I'm not the originator of beer can chicken. I I probably one of Canada's biggest promoter of it. Uh, it was really to show you that your gas grill can be more dynamic and a little easier method than trying to set up that rotisserie that. With most people, when they get a, a gas grill and it comes with the rotisserie unit, the rotisserie unit sits in the garage or sits underneath the grill and never gets used. And so, I wanted people to have that experience of uh, a whole roasted chicken. And I had seen, uh, I had seen the beer can chicken down. I think I was at Memphis in May uh, barbecue competition back in the early 90s. I think it was summer of 94. Um, and I saw someone doing it, and I thought, that's pretty cool. Let's get playing with that and see what can happen. And does the beer impart any uh, flavor? Not really. Mm. If you brine in a little beer, you'll get more of the flavor. If you mix some beer into a, an injector uh, syringe and you pump that into the breasts of the chicken, you'll get more beer flavor. But really, it, it, uh, the, the can is to support the chicken as a vertical roaster And then the little bit of steam that is created helps to cook the bird and keep it nice and moist as it's cooking on the grill. But it's a very, very simple method. Um, My wife loves it. She thinks it's absolutely delicious way to cook a bird. She likes it done on a gas grill. And um, that's what we do. So, yeah, I still make it. And uh, it's probably, you know, I do I do beer can chicken once a month. It's Grab great. a can, it, shove it up the butt of the chicken, <laughs> throw it out there, put a little drip pan underneath it, and have a good time. hour, yeah, it, hour and a half later, you're done. Fabulous. It,
0: it, and it's got great visuals. It's always, a, always something to talk about when you're standing around the grill. Now, Ted, we got two more of these uh, potential myth or real, and you're going to clarify for us. One is that you appeared on Regis and Kelly. Is that accurate?
1: Uh, yes, six times. <laughs> how, was, how was that experience? That was pretty cool um, that was that was that was very cool it was oh man the, the there's so many great experiences and stories from the days there because it was chaos you're flying to New York and you got to do a cooking demo and you got to go shop and find your ingredients and your window of uh, you know they they were running a tight ship so it was it was a lot of fun. I think um, the last trip there the last one I did, um, was I was promoting my cookbook. Uh, oh, this is probably back 2009, 2008. It was it was King of the Q's Blue Plate Barbecue. Okay. And I was down doing a, a promotional tour with that book. And we were on Regis and Kelly. And I had, I don't know what, I was sick as a dog. Uh-oh. Let's just say they sent a limo and I threw up in it. Oh my! Um, and I wasn't hung over. I can <laughs> honestly say I was not hung over. Um, and I wasn't nervous, but I remember I was in the, I was in the bathroom at the studio at ABC and I was in the washroom and I was throwing up. My head was in the garbage can and Regis walked in and patted me on the back and said, how you doing? Are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing just fine. And he says, are you nervous? You shouldn't be nervous. You've been here before. And I'm like, I'm not nervous. I'm just sick. And I don't know what it is. And, uh, but he was kind and sweet and nice and, and uh in fact we're in here kelly here it is here kelly ripa that episode i had done a s'more quesadilla wow and here it is here
0: wow the s'more quesadilla and yeah. on on that is written what Ted and
1: it, it's it's to Ted uh love Kelly Ripa and then it says the word yummy. And I had made her a s'more quesadilla. And this is her bite mark out of it. And uh, I still have it in this Ziploc bag. I don't know, 15 years later, I dried it out. And it just sits in my desk drawer. And, what a fabulous. Uh, but I had gone, after the shoot, I had gone to her dressing room. And she opened the door. And she was standing there wearing a white towel. Uh-oh. And, and so she signed it, and she put hearts and kisses on the on the quesadilla. So it was it was a fun time. Was, that is great.
0: fabulous. That's a great experience. I got the second one. Ted, I want you to talk about is it's been said that in 2010, as part of a promotional tour for a cookbook, Ted Reader attempted to set a world record for the largest hamburger, grilling a 500-pound burger in downtown Toronto.
1: Did that happen? Uh, not a myth. It was uh, for the launch of my uh, cookbook, Napoleon's uh, Everyday Gourmet Burger Book. And May 3rd, I think it was, or May 6th, uh, 2010, we, uh, we broke the Guinness Book of World Records with a 590-pound burger. And we cooked it on the corner of uh, Young and Dundas in the, in the square there. And we cooked it over live fire charcoal. Took six hours to cook. The patty itself was, uh, I think, 225 pounds. And we had, to, we had to cook it to an internal temperature minimum of 160 degrees Fahrenheit um, by the rules of, of uh, 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 the health board in, in Ontario. Yeah. And uh, we had a 121-pound bun plus lettuce, tomato, pickles, onions, barbecue sauce, cheese. And it was a single bun that, uh, that the, the folks over at San Remo Bakery there on Evans Avenue had, uh, had baked in their oven, okay. and it was 15 inches thick. That's incredible. And so, yes, we, we broke that record. The record previous to my, uh, to my uh, record was 185 pounds, and so we crushed it. Oh, you crushed it. And, and to your knowledge, Ted, is that still in the, the Guinness Book of Records? No, it was it was beaten probably within two years. Oh uh, some guys out of the states came in and did it at 777 pounds, I think it was. and uh, I think it's even gotten a little bit more ridiculous since then. So I <laughs> don't know. A,
0: what a story.
1: <laughs> Ted, was, as
0: my, we wrap up here, what are your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? What are you working on?
1: Well, we're we're getting ready to open the joint. Uh, we're putting in a pizza oven on our uh, our patio, so we'll have mm-hmm. wood-fired pizza available. Uh, we're only open Thursdays through Sundays, okay. and uh, it, it's kind of nice because the the chaos of the world it, it's you get a little bit more time with your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working on a YouTube show right now that uh, started. Uh, will start launching this coming Friday. Will be our first launch. And it's really my, my buddy Kevin came to me and said, uh, I want to cook like you. And so it's really me showing Kevin some basic things from a hot dog to a tuna steak. And we don't know where it's going to go. And we'll invite other guests to come on and learn with me and ask some tips and tricks and go from there. So we really we're just keeping it light and keeping it real and having some fun. And, uh, and pushing on that, uh, we just launched another cookbook, number 22. Wow. Um, and it's a smoking book, and it's really a, a great guide on, on how to buy a smoker mm-hmm. and understand the different varieties of uh, smokers that you can get and grills. And then there's a whack of recipes in there as well, from, from rubs and brines and marinades to, mm-hmm. to cooking a steak, reverse sear, things like that. Um, And it's a great, uh, great little book. So you can find it on Amazon. Uh, Just Google my name, Ted Reader.
0: And on that note, I do want to know, first of all, I want to thank you for being here and being so giving of your time and your stories. Where can we best follow Ted Reader and keep up with
1: all the things you're up to? Uh, My website is tedreader.com or on Instagram, where I seem to spend a lot of my time. You're going to find me at Ted Grills or my restaurant at Ted Reader Barbecue, The Joint, and you'll find me there. And on uh, social media, it's uh, at Ted Grills uh, or Facebook at Ted Grills Original. So you'll find me there. Um, Any question you have about grilling, smoking, barbecuing, food, I'm always happy to, to share my thoughts. There's no secrets here. Uh, I want people to have as much fun out on their grills and smokers as I do enjoy the flavors and enjoy the fun that it brings and it's really it's the best job in the world to be able to do that it's
0: fabulous really fabulous I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast and on behalf of Chef Ted Reeder I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo
1: and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes.